a good reversal. They love when something is going one way and all of a sudden it switches. And I know we have the kids in our service today. And what I mean by reversal is that you think everything is pointing that it's going to happen this way and all of a sudden something happens and it switches. We love good reversals in sports. Friday night, I was up late watching the Phillies play against the Astros, and it looked bad. They were down 5-0 at the Astros stadium. But then they went on to score six home runs and reversed that game and ended up winning. We love that type of thing. We love books and movies that demonstrate reversal. Classics like The Prince and the Pauper, the one who is poor but then becomes something else. The Narnia, the horse and his boy. We love when we see this reversal of someone's fate, the reversal of their fortunes. We tell stories about people that we know People who never, uh, we expected, wouldn't amount to anything. How many interviews do you see of successful people that they say, well, you know, no one ever expected anything from me. No one thought that this was going to happen. But then they went on to accomplish these incredible things because their lives, something happened that completely reversed what happened. I think, though, the reason we love it so much is because that's what we want for ourselves. All of us at some point or another have circumstances that we would like to see reversed. All of us have some aspects of that we are facing that we want transformed. We want to see the bad turn to good, the painful to pleasant, the sorrow to joy, the sadness to gladness. I think deep down we love these stories of reversal because they allow us to live vicariously through them. We get to experience and, and imagine what it would be like. I didn't play at all in the game, and yet I went to sleep feeling victorious. We read these books over and over again because we love how, what it happens, and we imagine, man, what if that happened to me. But the reality is we keep going back to these same stories seeking satisfaction because true reversals are a rarity. The reason we keep talking about those same big games, those same stories, those same people, because we just don't see that kind of reversal that often. Only one team wins the championship. Only one pauper becomes the prince. Very few have their fortunes reversed. Only a few get the promotion. As Bill was praying, only a few see their sicknesses miraculously healed. We keep watching these things, telling these stories, dreaming of what it might happen, that it, of when and how it might happen for us. This morning, we're going to look at our passage, and we will see the greatest reversal the world has ever known. It is the story of darkness to light, of death to life, of defeat 
to victory. But the most spectacular part of this story, the most incredible part of this reversal, is that the reversal that is found in the resurrection is not one we must experience vicariously. It is not one that we just have to imagine what it was like for him. Not only does the resurrection reverse what is happening in Christ's story, it can reverse what happens in ours. Our greatest reversal can be found in Christ's greatest reversal. Here's our big idea. When we see the truth of the resurrection, our reality is reversed. When we see the truth of the resurrection, our reality is reversed. Turn with me to John chapter 20. As we prepare to jump into our passage, let's recall where we've been. Two weeks ago, we saw the crucifixion of Christ. It is the climax of the story. Christ has entered into battle with darkness. He came to finish the work, that which was promised, that which was foretold, the tension that had been rising through all of human history. Finally, Christ comes, and he says, it is finished. But what's the problem? In finishing the work, he died. It's wonderful that Christ finished the work, but it seems like the work also finished Christ. Last week, we looked in our passage, and John leaned into the death of Christ as he provided multiple witnesses and evidences regarding the reality of Christ's death. We saw that the death of Christ was necessary. Without Christ's death, there could be no reversal of our realities. But again, what's the problem? He's still dead. When we last left Jesus at the end of our passage last week, at the end of chapter 19, Jesus' body is lying dead in a tomb. Not the way we would expect for this story to go. Not what we would expect to be happening to the one who is God himself. But it is in this empty tomb that we will find the greatest reversal. It is in this empty tomb that our passage begins. Let's look at verse 1 where we see Mary's discovery and announcement. Verse 1, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. John begins the passage by giving us the setting. It's the first day of the week. Mary Magdalene is coming to the tomb early while it is still dark. This is Sunday morning. John continues by introducing a new tension. Mary arrives at the tomb and she saw that the stone had been taken away. In the following verses, we will see that the new tension that Mary feels at this discovery is, where is Jesus? Where is his body? Who took him and where did they put him? Now, I know that you know the story. We all know what's about to happen. But I just want to ask you this. Don't jump there quite yet. Let's consider what's happening to Mary right now. 
What has John already revealed about Mary in just this first verse? When does she go to the tomb? How does he describe it? It's the first day of the week, early while it was still dark. What is he saying about that? This would be the very first opportunity that a Jew could return to the tomb. Remember, when did Jesus die? He died on the day of preparation before the Sabbath. He died and they quickly, hastily had to lay him in the tomb that was at hand because they were getting ready for the Sabbath. All of that was done in our last passage, Nicodemus and Joseph, they they prepare Christ's body, they lay him in the tomb, but then it's the Sabbath. For the Jews, that would start when the sun went down. Throughout the entire Sabbath, no one could have gone. There were rules for the Jews of what they could and could not do on the Sabbath. And so Mary, all of the disciples, they've been waiting with anxiety, with sorrow, forced to rest as the body of their Savior rested in the tomb. But now it's Sunday early in the morning. When is Mary going? Before the sun is even up. She is anxious to be there. But notice what John also says. Not only does she go while it was still early, John says she went while it was still dark. What an incredible and purposeful description of this moment. For Mary, for the world, for the readers, this moment is still dark. John has used this imagery of light and darkness throughout his entire book. And every once in a while, he gives us clues about something that's happening. He says, and it was night after Judas leaves the betray. He talks about Nicodemus who came while it was night. And here we have Mary coming to to the tomb and it was still dark. For Mary, she goes in the darkness, and to make matters worse, before the light comes, it grows even darker. The stone has been taken away. Not only is Jesus dead, not only has she been unable to mourn at the tomb, now when she finally has the chance to go, she realizes it's too late. She reaches the tomb and sees that someone has already been there. The stone has been taken away. Follow along as the tension for Mary continues to build. Verse 2, so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Mary runs to those who had been Christ's closest followers throughout his ministry and tells them what she has discovered What she tells them is her first assumption. This is what she assumes has happened. Someone has stolen Christ's body. He's gone. Now, it's not clear who the they are that Mary refers to. The tomb Jesus was laid in was not a common tomb. It was the tomb of someone that would have been wealthy. So it's possible that she suspects that someone has robbed his body. 
And that's who she's accusing. Or it's also possible she's thinking of the Jewish leaders. She knows that the Jewish leaders know about what's happened to Lazarus. Maybe she suspects that they have taken his body so that no one can claim anything has happened like happened to Lazarus. We're not sure who Mary is referring to, but she is convinced of and is sharing with Peter and John that Jesus' body has been taken. And she's desperate. She doesn't know what to do. The story now is going to shift and focus on Peter and John, but, but remember Mary in this because we're going to circle back in our next paragraph to Mary, and Mary's story is going to continue. In this moment where she is still in darkness, that will be reversed. But now let's look at Peter and John who leave to investigate. So Peter went out with the other disciple, this would be John, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. I think one of the things that we think about in this passage is why does John talk about the race? Why is John writing about who got there first? It's likely Peter already died well before John wrote the fourth gospel, but, but you can almost imagine if, if, if Peter got a manuscript before and he's reading and he's reading and he's, you have got to be kidding me. Out of all the things that you purposefully did not put in this book and told us there's many things that Jesus did that are not written here, you chose to put that detail in? That's the part that, well, Peter ran, but the other one was faster. But seriously, John is so intentional in his details. Why does John mention that he outran Peter? I'll be honest and tell you, I'm not entirely sure, but I have two suspicions that I'll share with you. The first reason is that it is a means of once again demonstrating the emotion in the moment. Have you ever had moments of such intense emotional pressure, such intense emotional burden that it manifested in physical ways? There's a few times that I can think of when that happened for me. One of them was when I was a kid. I grew up in, in Brazil, and I remember when we heard about 9-11. Early in the morning, only the, the first plane had hit, and we didn't own a TV or anything, and so, but there was someone who lived about a mile away from our house that owned a TV and, and could get the news, and I, I believe they could also get uh, American news stations. And when I heard about the news, I left the house and sprinted to this other person's house. What I felt was entirely helpless in the face of something far bigger than me. The only thing I could do, I couldn't control anything but the speed in which I ran. Another time that I experienced that, some of you were involved in this and here during that time that one of my kids, 
went missing after church on a Sunday. And for a while, we're just thinking, okay, you know, they're just in one of the offices or hiding. But as time went on, and it's longer and longer, and we haven't found them, and I personally, the, just a few days before, had re- read a report put out by a large group regarding churches regarding the sexual abuse of children. So my expectations and view of humanity was about as low as it could possibly be. And I'm looking for for my child, and I can't find them. And as it went on, I started sprinting through the neighborhood, seeking, because I could do nothing except control the speed in which I ran. I think part of what John is demonstrating here is that they have been helpless. They have been locked up. They have been waiting. And finally, they, they hear something, something, and, and they, it just adds to their desperation. And the only thing they can do is run. And they run not at a jog together thinking, oh, man, what, what, what do you think we're going to find there? They sprint. I think the other reason, though, that John tells us this is a, is a matter of accountability. John has a very apologetic person. I don't mean apologetic in, in saying sorry. John has apologetic in the sense that he's trying to prove something. He's trying to give evidence of something that has happened. And there's an element here, if we look at the progression, there's an accountability in what John shares because he knows people are going to doubt this. Mary arrives while it is dark, sees the stone removed, and goes to the disciples. John gets to the tomb first, but only looks in and doesn't go in. Peter arrives behind John, but is the first to go in. What does this provide us? Accountability. We know that people are going to blame the disciples for what's happened. In fact, we are told in Luke that the chief priests spread a rumor that it was the disciples who stole the body. What John is giving us is an account that shows the accountability of what happened. Each of them were there at different times, but without the time in order that would be necessary to steal away the body. So what did Peter and John find? It says that they found linen cloths lying there. There are various traditions and theories regarding the linen cloths and what exactly Peter and John saw, and we don't have time to go through that. And quite frankly, I don't think that's the point. Here's the point. What do the linens left behind mean? The linens prove that Christ's body was not taken. Now, you might be asking, how does that prove anything? Well, well, let's think through this. If this was a robbery, what would they be coming to rob? Everything but the body. The body would have no value to robbers, especially a body that was as bruised and broken as Christ's body was. There would be no point if they were robbing this tomb to take nothing but the body. On the other hand, if the body was removed by the Jewish leaders, leaving an open tomb with grave clothes left behind would accomplish the opposite of what they wanted. Think about it. What is a better testament to someone's death? It's not an empty tomb. 
If they're wanting to prove that Jesus is dead and is staying dead, it's in their best interest to leave the body there. In fact, they might remove the linen cloth so that everyone could see that a body is still there. John tells us about the linen cloths to show us that this was neither a robbery nor a removal. He's showing us the empty tomb. Knowing what John has seen, how does John interpret it? Verse 8, Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, this is John, he also went in, and he saw and believed. It's interesting that in our passage we see three different people who saw the tomb, but only one of them truly saw. Passage begins by saying Mary saw the stone taken away, but she runs to Peter and John and tells them the Lord was taken. Peter saw the linen cloths lying there, but Luke 24 says that after seeing it, he went away wondering. But John saw and believed. Can you imagine John reliving the moment as he was writing this down? Sometimes when I'm working on a message and I, I just get all caught up in a passage, I, I can feel the emotion and get choked up in my office as I'm writing something down. Just imagine John as he's writing about this moment when he came to the empty tomb and he saw and he believed. John's life reversed from unbelief to belief. John saw the truth of the resurrection and his reality was reversed. This is the whole point of John's gospel. John 20, verses 30 and 31, at the end of this chapter, this is what it says. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In the first half of John, we saw seven signs that Jesus did that proved who he was. He was, he is God. But in this second half of the book, we see the sign, the greatest sign that proves his identity. We find it in the empty tomb. If the empty tomb does not prove Christ's identity, nothing will. This is the sign of who Jesus truly is. He is God who conquers death. And he is man who died as the perfect sacrifice. Here's the principle I want us to get. Unbelief becomes belief when we truly see the empty tomb. Mary saw the tomb, but she didn't really see it. Peter saw the tomb, but he didn't quite get it. Until both of them understood what the empty tomb truly meant, their unbelief would remain. But John sees it, and John's unbelief becomes belief because he truly saw the empty tomb. Each of the Gospels emphasizes the empty tomb because if the tomb is not empty, then all of this is meaningless. This is what 1 Corinthians 15 tells us. If Christ is not risen, then our faith is in vain. If the tomb is not empty, 
all of this is pointless. But in fact, the tomb is empty. And if we truly see the empty tomb, unbelief becomes belief. Move on to verse 9. It says this, For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. This feels a little confusing. Because John says he saw and believed, and then the next thing says, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. At face value, this doesn't seem to make sense that he he saw and believed because he didn't understand. But this is what I think is, is happening. John believed even though he didn't fully understand. John didn't believe in the resurrection because he had come to some conclusions regarding Scripture and then interpreted the empty tomb as fulfillment. John believed based on the evidence that was before him even though he did not yet understand the Scriptures. Now understand, John is not boasting here. Because later, Jesus is going to have a conversation with Thomas and say, Thomas, you believe because you see. Blessed are those who believe without seeing. John is saying, I believe because I saw, but now I'm giving you the scripture so that you may believe without seeing. This is actually a pattern. This this misunderstanding of scripture is a pattern that John has been very open about throughout the entire book. John 2, when therefore he was raised from the de- disciples, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed in Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. They hadn't understood it before until after. John 12, 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. John 13, 7, Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. The understanding is coming. Remember, Jesus promised the Holy Spirit. He told them that the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you and bring all things to your remembrance, all that I have said to you. What we are seeing in this is that the disciples didn't first come up with their own interpretation, their own theories of Scripture, and then force Christ to fit it. Christ fulfilled the Scriptures, and then they came to understand it. And even before fully understanding, they came to believe. After John comes to this realization, it says that the disciples go back home. And that verse really serves as a transition into the next part, which is going to go back to Mary. But, but here's the question before we go to that next paragraph that I want to ask. Do you truly see the empty tomb? Do you see the truth of the resurrection so that your reality is reversed? See, everyone wants their reality reversed. But for many of us, our biggest hang-up is that we don't have enough information. We need to understand more. At least that's what we think. Now, I, I don't quite understand how all of this fits together. I don't understand every single piece of this, and so I, I can't believe it yet. And I'm going to be painfully blunt and say that that's Pride. Unbelief in what Christ has revealed because we think we need more is pride. 
you've heard enough this morning. Not in my words, but in God's words. He has revealed the empty tomb. You have enough. You might not understand how this fulfills all of the scriptures. That's okay. You can't understand them. You don't have the Holy Spirit. But you have enough. You have what is revealed here. You have the empty tomb. Do you really want to see your reality reversed? Then see the resurrection. See the empty tomb. When we see the truth of the resurrection, our reality is reversed. See and believe. The reason the tomb was full in the first place was because Jesus died for our sins. Because he paid the price we deserve to pay. Because he was hanging in our place. The reason he was dead was for our sin. But he conquered it. That's why the tomb was empty. That's what we need to truly believe. But now our story returns back to Mary. For in Mary's story, we see that the reversal is not found merely in the empty tomb, but also in the risen Lord. We begin by seeing Mary's sorrow-filled presumption. Look at verse 11. But Mary, verse 10 says, that then the disciples went back to their homes. Verse 11, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look, look into the tomb. What we see here is Mary's grief. John and Peter have left. It's possible they left before Mary returned from telling them about her discovery. They ran all the way there. They, they were, went quickly, and now Mary, it's possible that Mary arrives after, but for whatever reason, Mary is here alone, and she is weeping. The weeping that is described here is not pretty crying. These are not silent tears. This is not gentle crying. This is the weeping and lament of sorrow and anguish. Think of Mary's sorrow as she looks into the tomb. This weekend has been the most traumatic experience of her life. She has seen her Lord crucified. This is the one who saved her when all others damned her. This is the one who looked on her plight and, as the Gospel of Luke tells us, cast out seven demons from her. This is the one who showed her truth and love. And this is the one she is helpless, was helpless to help in his moments of pain and torture. Now, finally, after an agonizing period of waiting, she finally can come to the tomb and do the little she can for the one who did so much. But what does she find other than it is too late? They have taken the body. Alone in her desperation, she weeps. She came while it was still dark, and the darkness has only grown deeper. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever been in a moment of darkness, a moment of anguish, thinking that the end was near only to find something that made it even darker? That's where Mary's at. But her reversal is coming. Before her reversal, we see Mary's presumption. 
Verse 12, it says, She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? We know that within the, four, the other Gospels, the angels had a greater part in this whole story, but the only part John is concerned about is the question they ask Mary, Woman, why are you weeping? Now, if you're Mary, if you're thinking about Mary in this moment, how do you feel about that question? What do you mean? Why am I weeping? I think I've earned the right to weep. It's kind of been the worst and darkest days of my entire life. Don't ask me why I'm crying. You don't know what I'm going through. Mary responds by telling them why she's crying. She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Want to know why I'm crying? Because they've taken him. He's gone, and I don't know where he is. Do you hear the desperation in Mary's words? Here's what I want to see. What is Mary's perspective at this moment? It's a moment of darkness. How is Mary interpreting everything that is happening right now through the lens of darkness? Please understand me. I'm I'm not pointing fingers at Mary. I'm demonstrating that Mary is doing what we all do. In moments of sorrow and grief, it's hard to see anything that is not more cause for sorrow and grief. Left to ourselves in our grief, our lens will always lend itself to a perspective of darkness. This is why the angels are asking her this question. It's not out of ignorance. It's not because they don't know. It's a challenge to what she presumes in her grief. Mary presumes that Christ has been taken. Her tears are the tears of defeat, the tears of darkness. But the angels know this is the moment of greatest victory not defeat. The moment of light, not of darkness. The moment of life, not of death. Woman, why are you crying? Now you might be thinking to yourself, well, that's not very fair. How was she to know that this was going to happen? Well, it all depends on who she saw Jesus to be. That's been the point of John. Who is Jesus. Who was Jesus to Mary? Was he truly the one who would destroy this temple and in three days raise it up? Was he truly the one who would be lifted up like Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life? Was he truly the one who would lay down his life for the sheep, but not only lay it down, but also take it up again? Was he truly the one who said to Martha at a different tomb, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Mary, why are you weeping? How often in our sorrow do we forget the words and promises Christ has already given us? How often when we are in our moments of darkness do we forget what Christ has already revealed? 
How often do we forget that in this world we will have troubles, but take heart, he has overcome the world. Mary's not quite there yet, but her moment's coming. For now she turns and speaks to another. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? You've got to love the way John just flat out says the most epic thing in the most common way. She turned around and saw Jesus. I, I think, uh, just trying to think of the first readers who, who got this, I, I know that we all know the story, but um, you ever have like a favorite movie that has this like really epic moment in the movie and, and you finally convince your friend or, or someone that you, you want to, you value their opinion to watch it with you and you get to that moment and the whole time you're like doing one of these, you don't want to give it away by like looking at them, but you're just kind of glancing and seeing like how are they going to respond to this moment? Imagining John, the, the first readers uh, who, who are going to see this, she turned around and saw Jesus. I knew it. I knew he was alive. I knew it wasn't going to end that way. She saw Jesus. The greatest reversal that we could ever want is the risen Lord. She saw Jesus because Jesus is alive. This is the moment we've been waiting for. Yes, the climax was in the cross that he finished it, but now it wasn't finished for him. He's alive. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Mary can't yet see who is in front of her. And Jesus asks her two questions. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Before I move on, let, let me just do one quick aside that... Um, I was listening to the passage and working through this and with my wife Hannah, and she brought out this element that I just thought was, was so profound and beautiful. All of this conversation is happening, what we know from the end of John 19, that this, the tomb was in the garden. In fact, Mary thinks, as we're going to see in the next verse, that she's talking to the gardener. When is another time that people talked to God, the gardener, in a garden as he asked them questions. The Garden of Eden. But at that point, God was looking for Adam and Eve who were hiding in shame and asks them, why were you hiding from me? Here, God comes to Mary and asks her, whom are you seeking? It's totally reversed. Before, we had to hide in the garden in our shame. Now, we stand in the garden and Christ comes to us and asks us, who are you looking for? That's awesome. In every sense of the word. But back to the question. Jesus begins by asking the same question the angels ask. Woman, why are you weeping? Again, the question is meant to cause Mary to reflect on her perspective. He then asks, whom are you seeking? Notice, Jesus doesn't ask, what are you seeking? He asks, whom are you seeking? It's interesting because a few days earlier, Jesus asked the same question of the soldiers who came to arrest him. Who are you looking for? But there, after he asked them, whom did they seek? He revealed his power by speaking his own name. 
Now he will reveal his power by speaking Mary's name. But before we get there, let's see Mary's response. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. You can't help but feel for Mary. Her heart aches to find Jesus. Where is he? If you're the one who took him, I don't care. Just tell me where he is, and I'll take him. Please, just tell me. Are you the one who took him away? How often does John give the words profound truth for people that don't know what they're saying? Was he the one who took the body away? He was. Little does she know the one she seeks for is the one who speaks to her now. Here is Mary in darkness. Here is Mary who cannot see the truth through her tear-filled eyes. Here who is Mary who has not perceived the grace before her in her grief. Here is Mary who has found no joy in her sorrow. But now comes the great reversal. Now is Mary's grace-filled encounter. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni which means teacher. One word. Jesus said one word. And what was that word? Jesus spoke her name. Jesus sees Mary in her darkness. He sees her in her grief. He sees her in her sorrow. He sees her while she does not yet see him. And then he calls her by name and everything is changed. All of her pain is reversed. Jesus said to her, Mary. John 10, 3, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. He calls his own sheep by name, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Mary did not recognize him when she first saw him. She did not perceive his identity as he questioned her. But when he spoke her name, she knew his voice. What has happened to Mary's sorrow? What has become of her grief? Where has her pain gone? It's been reversed because she has encountered the risen Lord. When we see the truth of the resurrection, our reality is reversed. Sorrow is turned to joy when we encounter our risen Lord. Nothing else has the power to do that. Nothing else can transform our sorrow like this. This is what Jesus promised when he was preparing his disciples for his departure. John 16, 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. I don't know the pain that you're facing. I don't know the sorrows that you bear, but I do know this. There's hope. There's hope in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. 
When we see the truth of the resurrection, our reality is reversed. I don't have all the answers for your suffering. I can't explain all your tears and trials. But Jesus sees them. Jesus knows, and in Jesus, those things lose their power. Brothers and sisters, why are you weeping? What source of sorrow is there in your life that Christ's victory over the grave does not prove greater? What source of sorrow is there in your life that Christ's victory over the grave does not prove greater? What grief is not conquered by the empty grave? What tears are not, are not removed because of this truth? What sorrow is not turned to joy when we consider our Savior? Please understand, I am not saying that we will have no tears in this life. I am not saying that if you just understand the resurrection, you will have no hardship. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying, though, is that these light and momentary afflictions are nothing compared to the weight of glory. I am saying that even in our darkest hours, in our darkest sorrows, there is brighter joy found in him. Jesus sees your tears. Jesus knows your darkness. Jesus understands your sorrows. Come to Jesus. See your Savior. Let him speak your name as you follow his voice. And then when we thought it couldn't get any better, it does, because not only is Mary's grief removed, God's grace is revealed. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. There is some confusion here regarding Christ's admonition when he says, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Again, there are many views of what's happening, but this is what I believe. This is not a rebuke against Mary. He's not saying, no, 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 you can't touch me. I haven't ascended yet. What Jesus is saying is, we have time, but right now I have another task for you. It's not inappropriate for Mary to embrace Jesus. Later in this chapter, Jesus is going to call to Thomas and say, Thomas, put your hand on my side. Put your fingers on my hand. Touch this. Know that it's real. It's not a problem for Mary to do that. But right now, Jesus has another task for Mary. Mary, I haven't ascended yet. We will have more time. But right now, I have something for you to do. Go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. There is a message that must be proclaimed, and now that message must happen. Go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. We cannot comprehend the magnificence of this grace because we cannot hope to fathom the depth of our depravity nor the height of God's majesty. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try. Is there anyone in this world who is worthy to be called a brother or sister of Christ? Is there anyone who has earned the right to call God our Father? Is there anyone who merits the privilege of claiming the God of the universe is our God? There is no one but Christ who deserved that. But through his death, burial, and resurrection, he gives us that right. 
This is the amazing, marvelous, incomprehensible, incredible grace that is demonstrated. And it's all because of him. John 1.12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. To those who receive and believe in him, Jesus calls us family. He goes to his father and our father, to his God and our God. It is then that Mary goes with her joy-filled proclamation. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. I want you to notice the progression of Mary's story. See the reversal that is found. In verse 1, she walks to the tomb with the heavy burden of darkness. Now she carries the lightest truth of the light of the world. In verse 2, Mary runs to the disciples in sorrow as she assumes the Lord was taken. Now she joyfully announces to the disciples, the Lord is risen. I believe one question we must ask ourselves is, are we proclaiming Christ like Mary? Mary saw the risen Lord. Her reality was reversed. And what did she do? She proclaimed to others, I have seen the Lord. I understand that sharing our faith is often a daunting and scary task, but it doesn't have to be. Yes, we will face persecution. Yes, we will be hated by the world because of this, but there is nothing that compares with this glory. This is all we have to say. We have seen the risen Lord. We are to, pro to proclaim that we have seen the risen Lord. We are to proclaim that God is our Father because of the work of Christ that, that he in his death, burial, and resurrection. We are to proclaim that once enemies, now family, because we have received and believed in Christ alone. We are to proclaim that our reality has been reversed. When we started this morning, we talked about reversals. We talked about our love of great reversals as well as our desire for reversals in our own life. And truly, there is no greater reversal than Christ's resurrection. Death is reversed to life. Darkness is reversed to light. Defeat is reversed to victory. But the most incredible, the thing that is truly amazing is that Christ's reversal can also be our reversal. We do not have to live vicariously through this, imagining what this would be like. I once was dead, but now I am alive. I once was in darkness, but Christ has called me to his marvelous light. I once stood defeated in my sin, but now I stand in Christ's victory. When we see the truth of the resurrection, our reality is reversed. Unbelief becomes belief when we truly see the empty tomb. Sorrow is turned to joy when we encounter our risen Lord. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, if you have seen the truth of the resurrection, your story has had the greatest reversal. Nothing surpasses this story. 
This is the blessing of the resurrection. In his death, we find mercy. In his life, we find grace. When we see the truth of the resurrection, our reality is reversed.